Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week. We're going to hit on two somewhat different topics this hour, but they both have to do with the ways in which the military is using data to make better decisions. A little bit later in the program, we'll dive into the latest on the Army's logistics support activity. LOGSA, as it's called, is a project of Army Materiel Command. The objectives are to use big data and smarter analytics to improve the Army's readiness. IBM has just won a $135 million renewal of its contract to help manage the program. Watson is involved, we'll explain. First, though, recall back in 2014, sequestration and the effects of the Budget Control Act were still a recent phenomenon, and in that environment, the Air Force decided one way to cut costs was to do what the Army and Navy had already done, consolidate a lot of the management functions of running installations under one centralized organization. Three years later, the Air Force Installation and Mission Support Center is fully up and running from its headquarters at Joint Base San Antonio. It's about to declare full operational capability. Major General Brad Spacey is the center's commander. He talked with me about some of the things the Air Force has started to learn about how to manage its operations more effectively once it stopped letting each major command run its own bases. Many people don't remember that we were stood up as an efficiency. The Air Force had to make some serious cuts. They had been cutting away at staffs for a long time. And I think smart people realize that if you keep doing that, you just have fewer and fewer people doing more and more, and things fall off the plate. And that's when the Air Force made the corporate decisions and centralized installation and mission support, intermediate headquarters level in one organization. That's a long way of saying it took all the installation and mission support staffs from the MAGCOMs, the major commands, and put them in one organization. That's us, the Air Force Installation and Mission Support Center. And what would, what would you say the key functions that you have taken over at this point are? And is that project complete, basically? Is everything that you were going to take from the MAGCOMs been taken from the MAGCOMs? It was taken. Now? It's taken. Yeah, out. and <clears throat> because things happened so quickly. Remember, there was, there was a, a – we only started doing this three years ago. And so there was a sense of urgency to everything. So a lot of it was guesswork based smart people. But it was guesswork. And we took all the functions in the installation mission support um, functions. So security forces, civil engineering, logistics readiness, Air Force installation contracting, services, um, some chaplain capabilities, some public affair capabilities, and some smaller uh, JA or, or uh, legal capabilities, mostly for our enterprise. But we did take on some enterprise-wide responsibility as well. So there's nine functions that we now um, provide capability to the MAGCOMs that they used to do for themselves. So tell me some success stories. What have you gotten out of centralizing some of those things? Oh, my goodness. And we only have a little bit of time here. So the big ones are, you know, clearly there were 10 MAGCOMs doing things before, all on MAGCOM priorities and uh, MAGCOMs willing to take risk in different areas for different reasons. So now we're able to do that from a central location to take risk based on Air Force priorities. In a limited fiscal environment, that's crucial because you have to make the absolute best use of every resource that comes down, whether it's a dollar or a person. You have to use the absolute, make the best use of it towards an Air Force priority. That's the number one thing we do, and we do it exceptionally well. It's not bragging. We do it well because they built us to do that. We have the Air Force uh, MAGCOM level staff, certainly, but they also attached what used to be called field operating agencies. So the Security Forces Center, the Air Force Civil Engineers Center, the Air Force Services Activity, 
the Air Force Installation Contracting Agency, Financial Center of Expertise and the Air Force Financial Services um, Center. Those used to port, report to their functional counterpart in the air staff. They all report to us now. So now you've got the best of the MAGCOMs combined with the best of these field operating agencies to provide an enterprise-wide view the Air Force has never had. It's, it's incredible. So that right there is success. Just putting that together and executing duties. In there, we're learning all kinds of things. By setting these functions all together next to each other in the same room or in the same organization, we're getting at questions we've struggled with my whole career. For instance, an industry standard for investing in an installation would be about 2% to 4% of your plant's replacement value. This is a little engineer geeky, but it's an industry standard. 2% is the lower part of that threshold. Well, the Air Force has struggled to make that threshold for a number of years. What's the impact of that? Well, no one knows. I mean, infrastructure fails over a long period of time, and it certainly doesn't fail overnight. So it's easy to kick that can. Well, we've been doing that for a while. We can put objective numbers to that. The cost of that deferred sustainment for the Air Force that has never been known before. And we did it in a year. We are starting to manipulate that data to produce decision-level information for the four stars to make when they're making those big planning choice type decisions. We can show them investment profiles over time that make the problem better, accept risk in targeted areas that make it worse, but in areas we can accept that risk on focus the effort on different warfighting sets based on whatever priority the chief comes up with. We've never been able to do that on the installation and mission support side. And that's just infrastructure. We're going to be able to do that in security forces, which is usually a, a manpower-driven metric. We can add the qualitative pieces of training and equipping and work schedules. We can do that in the customer-facing organizations like the services activity, which is MWR-type programs family readiness, critical risk to force issues. We've always struggled to get a tangible, programmable, planable metric to, because it's that big gray area of what makes people feel good. Well, we're going to put, object, using the same methodology as we do for infrastructure, put objective measures to those so we can tee up those resourcing decisions. First year. So I think across all the military services, the Air Force has the biggest excess infrastructure problem based on the limited data that we have so far. You said that this, this entire effort has, has allowed you to measure things better, but yeah, has, it, has, has the centralization also let you make better decisions about how to manage the infrastructure you've got and the excess that you've got in lieu of, of a background or something else? Yeah, it applies to any scenario you can come up with. Manage it better, plan for it, predict it, accept risk in it. Um, look for other opportunities to use it in the public-private uh, partnership um, capacity. I mean, that's just infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But that enterprise-wide view gives us the ability to use the data. Now, some of these are emerging databases that aren't fully populated, but some are very mature and integrated into decision-level information. That's, now, that's still we're still doing that functionally. So that's a huge success, largely in the engineering uh, infrastructure world. Huge success will be in the security forces world, the service world. The real magic will be the integration of those across what we call product lines. So product line integration, which we're doing, well, we're building the plan for right now. Right as we speak, my people are sending me updates on plans where we will integrate those product lines and pro provide that same level of decision quality information that takes into account the, 
the interaction between the different products. Mm -hmm. It's huge. But I mean, can, can you give me an example of, of a decision that was enabled by this better data um, that, that was made by the four stars you mentioned that, that couldn't have happened you know, back in the days when things were being managed MAGCOM by MAGCOM? I can give you one that, that will hopefully be made because okay. we're, just, we're just building it. Yep. We haven't gone to our first high-level decision-making body yet to do that. And you know, this, we're racing to get there because this is important. Um, and it's not that it couldn't be done last year. It, it could never be done. So we can go to the four stars, and we'll take this uh, hypothetically and say, okay, you have 10 MAGCOMs, major commands, all their infrastructure is in bad shape. Which one do you want to prioritize? Tell us whether it's a core function, if it's a mission area, if it's a geographic region, if it's a component of the weapon system that we call the installation, if it's electrical systems, if it's utilities, if it's um, you know, roofs, we can break it down any way you want and show you that investment profile and what it will do for the, the plant, but also the risk that you're assuming if you don't do it. So how long can it maintain what level until it fails or gets unrecoverable? Mm -hmm. So there's a curve there. Once you, once you go over the threshold, you've got to recapitalize. And now we can measure that accurately. And so you can really play it if you want to, right up into the edge, and then invest a bunch of money. Wouldn't be the smartest thing to do, but you could if you were pressed to do. That's Major General Brad Spacey, the commander of the Air Force Installation and Mission Support Center. We'll talk more after a quick break. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Servu. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Major General Brad Spacey is with us in this part of the hour. He's the commander of the Air Force Installation and Mission Support Center, about to reach its full operating capability and its role as the Air Force's new centralized organization to reduce some of the duplication and inefficiencies in the ways in which the service had been running its bases and support activities. We talked during the Air Force Association's annual conference in National Harbor, Maryland. So also in the other military services, there are organizations that are somewhat analogous to yours in the Navy Commander, Naval Installations Command, and the Army Installation. IMCOM. IMCOM, thank yeah, you. That's right. To what degree is your organization like those, and to what degree did you take lessons from what they've done in, in standing up your organization? That's a great question. So we're all, they all did it. So they centralized years ago, so they're well ahead of us. And we've been able to benefit from some of their, the things that have gone well and not so well, and some we just have to figure out if they work for us. One big difference, take us and IMCOM for the Army, um, they own the installations. Mm. So IMCOM actually has installation control. We don't have that. We own the resourcing. We get it straight from the Secretariat, and we deliver it straight to the bases. We have a governance process that helps make sure we do it correctly, but that's a big deal. I don't own installations. I just, the people that work for me work for me, so big difference. Um, another difference is, and it's a real, you really have to get out the specifics to understand it all, is they measure a lot more stuff. Measuring stuff is good, but trying to control resourcing by using all those measures is difficult. It starts to get too big of a grip, and that's because they own the installations, they can do that. I'm not sure we'd want to do that even if we did own the installations. You can get wrapped up in your data so tight that you can't make a decision. I'm not saying that they are, but I'm saying we don't want to be. So we don't measure as many things as they do. We don't have as many common output levels that they have, which I think is good for us. That's just one example of the type of thing we've been able to learn from them. 
is is that mostly just because you're a new organization and starting slowly, or was that was that a deliberate decision to to limit your your influence to as you said intermediate level support? Both. Yeah. I think uh, my predecessor, General Carter, T.C. Carter, really smart. She looked at all those things and said, you know, let's not let's not go quite there. Let's let's benefit from that and let's start here and then let's learn. So that's what we're doing. We started at a good, I think, a very good place, and that's where I say there's new discovery every day. Some things we want to measure a little bit more. Some things we're learning that we don't need to measure at all. That's commander stuff, and we just don't need to do that. Got it. Um, you, you mentioned at the beginning that this was mo- that the genesis of this was really an efficiency initiative. Yep. Um, so what can you tell us about the degree to which that's actually paid off? And, and one of the specific reasons I asked that question sure. is there was some, some criticism from the Hill a couple a couple years ago at least, mm-hmm. where there was a perception that what you were doing essentially was just moving a lot of these support staff from the MAGCOMs and then planting them within Installation and Management Support Center um, without actually cutting headcount. So yeah, has that were, been the case or not? Well, they certainly did move some. But, I mean, and this is a, a rough number, but it was, it's within a couple. Right at about 1,000 were cut-cut. So that's what the efficiency was. I mean, 1,000 people or, or billets went unfunded. So that was the efficiency. We were allowed to keep um, about 400 in the transition of the unfunded billets, just, and, and the Air Force is self-funding those, until we get through the, the stand-up and the initial few years of AFIMSC. So by 2021, we've got to finish paying that whole bill. So that's, that's a bill. I mean, that, those were, were bills gone. So I think that's unfair criticism. And what they're not taking into account is the things we've been able to do that we didn't know about. And that's a real hard thing to, to quantify because we're learning about it every day. We're learning how we can help uh, the functionals design new force presentation uh, options. We can do that because we have all the functionals living together in one place. Well, we don't think about that. That wasn't one of the visions, but it's happening, and that's huge. I mean, the ability to look at our deployment mission cross-functionally or multifunctionally, words we didn't really use a year and a half ago. I mean, the idea that one airman can do more than one function, well, that just happened from people from all those functions sitting in a room, functional area managers saying, you know, we deploy that team, so do we, and so do we. What if we all were trained a little bit differently? Then you could deploy one smaller team of cross-functionally trained airmen, and the very high end of it would be a multifunctional airman, which could do many things. Now, we're just nicking the – we don't have results on that yet. We're just scratching the surface mm-hmm. on it. But that's the kind of thought that we hadn't – that we weren't built to do deliberately that's happening. Well, there's a point when you're going to want to develop that. I mean, you do. That, that takes people to do. And since we weren't built for it, we don't have the manning to do that more than spare time stuff. And we're doing it because mm-hmm. it's, it's good and it's, and it's exciting. But – and you just kind of flicked at this, but in my mind, this new organization, its main mission has been about base support, but there's also a heavy expeditionary yes. support role here. So talk, talk, about, talk about that particular role, sure. what are kind of the left and right bounds of what you do in that area. So we have an expeditionary directorate headed by One Star, and I used to have that job. That was my first job. Your yeah. Bio, yeah. And uh, so they took the same capabilities in the, in the um, readiness area from the MATCHCOM. So the functional area managers the people who do the, take the requirements from the, from the COCOMs and from the, for, the Global Force Manager was the Air Combat Command, work with the personnel center and find the airman that's going to deploy. These are the functional specialists that do that matching. They go find the airman, 
and you get tagged. Now, we, we don't do that alone. We do that for the MAGCOMs with uh, the Global Force Manager. But they have an enterprise-wide view now. So now you don't have 10 MAGCOMs trying to, to work that process independently with one coordinator. You have the coordinator built in to the plan. So, the, so these same functional area managers can look across the enterprise for the right person or team. We're not looking at MAGCOM at a time. Mm-hmm. That just saves time. It's already saved time. It doesn't, and so, so here's where it gets even better, though. So it saves time in, in missing someone and having to retask somebody else. Eventually, we won't have to do that. I mean, hopefully, because they'll be able to pick the right person the first time because they have the whole enterprise to look at. That's just functional area management, and that's just the uh, deployment tasking process, which is actually way more complicated. I oversimplified it, <laughs> but that's just one thing. If you look at the actual teams and equipment that we send different places, we always say downrange, but it's somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're taking those teams and equipment and saying, okay, what are the modernization plans across the board? Well, for some functions, there weren't good ones, and we're building those. What are the common pieces of equipment that are used in every or several different types of deployment teams? Can we purchase that or can we procure that um, strategically and get standardized equipment and get it at a better cost? We're centralizing management of the actual equipment in both engineering and security forces, and it's been a huge success in limiting the number of the, the, the amount of equipment we had stationed around at bases and managed locally by people to just central locations. So we've gotten rid of a lot of excess equipment that wasn't needed. We freed up people the time that you just have to management, manage it, and we're doing it centrally. And the, the, the plan now is that equipment will meet that airman where they need it. If it's in training, if it's in pre-deployment, or if it's at a deployed location. You know, that's going on right now. That's just the UTC, unit type code management piece of it. We've also been able to review all the UTCs to see if they're still relevant. And some weren't, and they had to be deactivated. We're also connecting training opportunities. So we have all these functions together now. Some functionals didn't go to pre, uh, specialized pre-deployment training for their function, and they certainly didn't do it with the other functions they're going to work with when they deploy. So we're creating those opportunities in both the Civil Engineering's Silver Flag Training Program and the Security Forces uh, Desert Defender Training Program for the contracting, the services, uh, and the personnelists and the public affairs specialists that didn't, weren't getting that training. So we're building that right now. That's all happening in a, in a year. <laughs> you know, so that's the exciting part. That's all readiness. And you can take it from the equipment that goes, the person that goes, the documents that are published, the orders that are built. Um, we have a hand in all of that. And the efficiency, so people always ask, the congressional people that might question what we did, take functional area managers. In the Air Force at the MAGCOM level, there were about 132 people, people that were functional area managers, different specialties, 132, 10 MAGCOMs. We have 25 doing the same work. And we're doing more than they used to do. That's, that's efficiency. Mm. There's no way. People argue, is this effective? Well, I think we're seeing it in the metrics. We've got to get a couple more years under our belt to, to take credit for it. But I think we're seeing it already. And some of these things I've outlined in other just time efficiency activities. When you have a person focused on that 24-7, they do well. The other thing we're seeing is they sit side by side. So now you have NCOs and officers learning other functions. So we're, we're thin. We only have 25 of them. They cover for each other all the time. In order to do that, they have to learn that functional specialty to some level. That just makes a better senior NCO. 
that just makes a better off, better officer. We don't know what the result of that will be downrange. It can't be or down downstream. It can't be bad. <laughs> it's goodness of some level. Major General Brad Spacey is the commander of the Air Force Installation and Mission Support Center. Talking with me on the sidelines of this year's Air Force Association Conference in National Harbor, Maryland. Another short break, and when we come back, how Watson might help the Army make better decisions about its entire logistics enterprise. This is on DOD, on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Servey. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. The Army's Materiel Command is awash in data, especially when it comes to its responsibilities to maintain equipment and get parts and supplies in the right place at the right time. AMC's logistics support activity has the task of aggregating that data to pinpoint exactly where the Army's logistics challenges are. LOGSA has just awarded a $135 million contract to IBM, one of the main incumbent vendors that's been supporting that work since 2012. Kevin Avon is the co-account lead for the company's Army and Marine Corps business. He talked with me about what the Army hopes to achieve with the re-up. So a little background about LOGSA. Um, was established really coming out of Desert Shield, Desert Storm back in the early 90s as a result of the Army determining that they had an enormous amount of data, but it was not being centrally managed or used to help the Army determine um, how much equipment was needed where to support, you know, tomorrow's fight. Um, so LOX has been in, a, you know, been in existence for that amount of time. Uh, we won uh, the contract in uh, fall of 2012, and the contract was to um, accomplish two tasks. Um, the first was to transition um, their existing traditional data center to a managed service, and secondly, it was to uh, modernize uh, their applications, which they have nearly 700 applications. And so that was our task. We were then uh, re-awarded that contract, uh, won the recompete uh, here in uh, July. And we're now, of course, continuing our execution of what, we, what we'd previously been doing from the original contract that we won in 2012. And when you say modernize applications, is that primarily so that they just so that they can be hosted in a, a cloud environment, or also to to add functionality? Both, and we have in fact um, migrated their 700 applications into a hybrid cloud environment. Um, that's what we transform their data center into. So when we transform their data center into managed services, the natural extension of that is it is in fact a private hybrid cloud uh, and so we move those applications during this initial the initial contract and the combination of the application migration and the establishment of that uh, private hybrid cloud um, saved or was cost avoiding the uh, logs of nearly two million dollars a month so that's and that's representative in, represented in our new contract being uh, quite a bit smaller, and it is representative of that cost avoidance that uh, we provided to Logsa through um, establishing the cloud and modernizing their applications. That that avoidance, I'm assuming, was mostly just around getting them out of the business of of running their own infrastructure. 
it was, but it's actually, there's actually two. The trans, transition to agile software development from the, the more traditional waterfall um, also provided them the opportunity to um, reduce the staff that used to be necessary to maintain their 700 applications um, by transforming to an agile software development model as compared to waterfall. So let's talk a little bit about the the additional services that you're going to be providing post recompete. And the one I'm most interested in is the addition of of artificial intelligence via Watson. How, how's that going to change things? Right. So we we uh, executed a pilot project with uh, Logsa um, that started about uh, about ten months ago. And in that pilot, um, we ingested the sensor data from two strikers, literally just two striker vehicles. Um, and ingested that sensor data, which um, had year had been in uh, those sensors had been um, providing that information for a number of years, and that information was being stored at LOXA. And in addition to um, ingesting that sensor data into Watson, we also ingested the maintenance manuals, safety of use manuals, and the um, engineering manuals from when that equipment was originally. Um, acquired by the Army. So um, just the, the transmission alone on the striker vehicle has 17 sensors. Wow. Um, those 17 sensors are firing ones and zeros that are being captured by a service bus um, on the vehicle. Uh, soldiers take that information off that service bus and send it to LOXA. And then LOXA had the sensor data but didn't have the capability to do anything with that sensor data to try to be more predictive of when faults were going to occur. So with all of that information, it took about four months to feed all of that into logs and to teach logs how to look at that data and what did it mean. And then we simply asked Watson to um, look at that data and see if it found anything interesting, you know, an anomaly, an insight. And the first thing that Watson did was come back and say, why is the transmission fluid temperature so high when the speed of the vehicle or the RPMs are so, so low? Hmm. You know, logically, those two should not be occurring at the same time. And so with that information, then you can begin to dig into, is it, uh, is it process-oriented? So... Uh, were, were the soldiers not operating that vehicle um, the way that was expected? Or is it, in fact, mechanical in that um, that particular transmission with that particular engine was not um, operating as expected? And quite simply, like on any vehicle, if you end up with uh, the uh, temperature of the fluids being extremely high, it will break down the viscosity of those fluids, which will cause the transmission to fail sooner. And did Watson and, know, know to ask that question simply because Watson knows some fundamental principles of mechanical engineering or because of that ingestion that you talked about of the maintenance manuals and engineering manuals specific to Stryker? It was the latter. So it was through the simple ingest of the information. It knows that the normal parameter for temperature is X, and this was exceeding that that temperature it also had the sensor that is, that's associated with the RPMs, how fast is the transmission moving the vehicle, and Watson could infer or question why those two things would be happening simultaneous. Gotcha. 
Okay, so so that was a pilot. Um, that that sounded like it was pre con uh, or pre recompete. Um, so what what's the scope of what you're going to do with Watson uh, after the recompete? Right. So post recompete is to ingest the rest of the striker fleet, and there are other sensors, of course, on the striker, not just the transmission, and to then look at those sensors and look for these same sort of anomalies. So, for example, in 2014, the Army spent about uh, $112 million on transmissions alone for strikers. If you had had a capability like Watson to anticipate failures or to look for anomalies, could have the Army not made, you know, been able to spend less money and purchase fewer transmissions if they could have been able to predict or estimate when that failure was going to occur, was there a smaller part or a different part of the transmission they could have replaced as compared to replacing the entire transmission? And so that's the kind of work we're doing as follow-on, but that's, that's strikers alone, right? There's other vehicle fleets, there's helicopters, and then there's other ways that you could use artificial intelligence. So for example, one of the projects we've just recently started post-award is uh, uh, the Army has a process called the uh, Air Clearance Authority. And what the Army uses that for is to try to determine which parts to fly versus which parts to put on a ship. And and the idea, the the simple fact there is, is flying it is multiple times more expensive to the Army than it would be to move it by ship. Sure. So with the the data that's available, the Army today can review about 10% of their of their um, orders to determine which way they should go. With a capability like Watson, the idea would be to analyze the entire um, data set and help the Army make transportation decisions to reduce the costs associated with moving parts to another theater of operations to support um, the Army. Beyond just moving parts, it seems like, you know, it, it would also help the Army at some point do better management of its inventories of spares so that it's not keeping more than it needs and that it's getting what it needs just in time. That's exactly right. So one of the, t one of the projects that LOGS is working on today is called the Expert ASL, um, the Authorized Stockage List. So that's the what the Army has... Um, ex expects is the right number of spares to go with an organization um, to a particular location and that those spares would provide them what they need to operate for a period of time. Watson will be able to help the Army analyze uh, what that package of spare parts should look like so that when the, the organization deploys, they deploy with the right set of spares, which would allow the Army to then more effectively use other means of transportation to, you know, provide spares in the future. Just curious, why would you start with strikers? Are, are they uniquely censored up um, compared to the rest of the Army, Army's vehicle fleet, or, or what was the advantage uh, the, there? Certainly, there are. The, the newer fleets of vehicles do have uh, more sensors because of, so about a decade ago was when the Army started um, directing the, the OEMs, the manufacturers of major end items to censor um, their vehicles. And so vehicles like the Striker that are newer um, do have more sensors. For example, like I said, there are 17 sensors just on the transmission alone uh, for a Striker. Um, so when you start talking uh, tanks or Bradleys or helicopters, 
Um, their components in most cases have those sensors, but maybe not the entire vehicle. And a lot of our wheeled fleet um, doesn't have those sensors, um, you know, cost-benefit uh, analysis done by the Army to decide what to censor and what not to censor. Um, so the Striker just became a pretty natural vehicle to do that, not to mention the Striker is in many cases the vehicle of choice for some of the operations the Army is currently um, in. So d does this get you to the point where you can stop or where the, where the Army can stop doing some, I guess I'll say, scheduled but unnecessary maintenance and move entirely to predictive maintenance, or, or do we not know yet? That's exactly the direction we're trying to move the Army towards. Uh, so today, um, based on historical uh, information, the Army has established standards like um, every 100 hours you operate a vehicle, you'll do X maintenance, or um, every month or every quarter. Uh, and some of that maintenance is, in fact, unnecessary and causes damage to vehicles while a soldier is trying to execute that particular um, preventive maintenance. And so instead of, for example, and this is probably almost best uh, recognized with helicopters where you um, tear helicopters down um, periodically based on hours of usage, and there's no other indicator than that that's driving you to do that particular maintenance. And now you have a helicopter that's unserviceable for some length of time as you're doing this periodic maintenance that wasn't driven by a fault but was instead just driven by, you know, an estimate that after X number of hours you should tear it apart, look inside all the componentry, and then put it back together again. That's Kevin Avon, partner and co-lead for IBM's Army and Marine Corps accounts. He's back with us after another quick break, and we will talk more about what the Army and the other military services are doing, what they can do to use data to help solve some of their readiness challenges. That's next on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Servid. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Kevin Avon is our guest for this part of the program. He's the co-lead for IBM's Army and Marine Corps accounts. We're talking about some of the work his company is doing under a $135 million contract to support the Army's logistics support activity. As we were discussing just before the break, it includes using things like IBM's Watson to pinpoint exactly when maintenance needs to be done on a particular vehicle. I know many of the military services, not just the Army, are, have looked at a lot of what industry has done in the world of predictive analytics and predictive maintenance. Uh, and so it just makes me wonder, have you guys done any work with Watson specifically um, with, with big industrial firms to do some of the same kinds of things? Absolutely. Um, one of the, one of the uh, ones that uh, we certainly talk about regularly, for example, is with Volvo. So Volvo Trucking is a, is a large commercial contractor. Um, what we're doing with Watson today is, uh, um, you know, Watson, of course, is being predicted. But, but if an error occurs, um, an operator can literally on his phone um, go back into, you know, reach back to the, web, the website and look at, a video of what the most likely cause of the uh, the air light or the fault on the vehicle and what to try to repair or what to assume they can or cannot repair and so literally in a in a two hour video that say is about the right front axle um, that'll take the operator right to that 
minute or two of the video that shows him what he should be looking for as it relates to a vehicle fault. And so that's one example, uh, but we're using, certainly using Watson in a number of different commercial capacities, as well as 30 different governmental agencies are now doing pilots of how to use Watson to help them manage some of these, you know, extremely large data environments that they're dealing with and how to use Watson to be more predictive. The the second part of that, though, and, and this is, you know, this is, Predicting is something that a lot of companies have taken um, um, efforts to try to do for a number of years, but the transition from being predictive to prescriptive is an incredibly important here. So you've got all these soldiers in all these different locations with all these different pieces of equipment in different environments, training, and others, and you would like to be able to tell them all how to um, anticipate something with a particular vehicle fleet or a particular subcomponent. And Logs's role delivering um, a, a something called the PS Magazine, which is literally a little cartoon book. Um, they do that every month. Of course, now it's on the web as well. So when Watson determines that something is being done um, to a vehicle that you know, they want to change how, how the soldiers are operating it, for example, they now have the ability to become prescriptive and to tell those soldiers in advance, I need you to change how you're operating, I need you to change how you're doing maintenance so that we don't have these kind of errors continue across the entire fleet. So that movement from predictive to prescriptive becomes incredibly important for um, not only saving dollars, but uh, actually keeping the equipment more effective in the mission that it, that that the soldiers are expecting it to perform. Yeah, and you said toward the beginning that a lot of these these questions and decisions that Watson is making is based on the the, the maintenance and engineering ma- manuals that it ingested at the at the front end. Does this come full circle at some point, where based on what you've learned out of the process or what Watson has deduced out of the process, that uh, you get some input in how to rewrite those manuals so that they produce better results? That's exactly right. But as you can imagine, rewriting manuals becomes very expensive. So the more, you know, the commercial, you don't rewrite a, you know, a, a manual, you change how it is on the web so that the soldier can get access to that, that information. But, but secondly, when you look at this, uh, so the Army has been putting something called PBL, so basic, basic expectations of how a subcomponent is going to work for how long. So I buy starters from XYZ company, and the starters are supposed to do 10,000 turns before they, before they fail. Well, how does the Army know whether or not those, they're getting that level of value out of that particular subcomponent? It's very difficult in, if you don't have sensors and if you don't have the kind of uh, data capture and data management that, that AI brings. And so now you'll have the ability to also you know, look at whether or not the Army is getting the warranties and the value that they're getting out of the subcomponents um, that they're purchasing from different companies. All right. And Kevin, while we have you, I um, want to switch gears completely because as you and I were talking off off air a little bit, you're also heavily involved in uh, in the Army pilot down at Redstone to do an on-premise uh, private cloud, uh, their, their first one ever. Certainly don't expect you to speak for the Army, but uh, what can you tell us about how that's working so far and, and what, what some of the lessons have been? 
I appreciate that. Uh, so this is a, a, a third generation um, model of cloud that has been approved by the Army um, for um, IL-5, so a higher high level of security. And so this is a this is the third generation of IBM delivering this capability. Um, that's important in that this is not, you know, some brand new technology you know, something that there's a lot of risk. It's instead something that's been proven uh, a number of times. Um, we're several months ahead of the schedules that uh, the Army had provided for us, and we anticipate hosting our first app uh, within the next couple of weeks. And uh, that's that's months ahead of where the, the Army expected us to be. And it, it really sets the condition for the Army to get at one of their core requirements which is to reduce the number of data centers so that they reduce their cost and they reduce the opportunities for security challenges. The more places or more entry points that uh, that someone might have to try to attack the infrastructure, uh, that many more points the Army has to try to secure. So the establishment of this uh, Army private cloud is to facilitate closing data centers, reducing security, and dramatically saving the Army costs. And at this point, we're ahead of schedule, and we expect to be hosting our first app in the next couple of weeks. And the, the answer to this is probably no, since you haven't hosted any applications yet. But but any clear cost savings or cost avoidances you can point to even at this early stage? Now, it's very difficult because of the way the Army has um, – the Army generally has funded each program manager – hundreds if not thousands of program managers across the Army to acquire their IT support from a particular um, location, mm -hmm. lots of different locations. And so the ability to pinpoint actual dollars and cents is very difficult at this point. But the, the, real, the real savings will not only come from the ability to do this infrastructure as a service, but as the Army matures down this path, they will eventually be able to do platform as a service, um, which will really dramatically reduce their costs. Um, instead of having to, you know, buy licenses of software for every one of those data centers, you're now buying it once. And so the Army's buying power and their ability to control their costs and generate higher ROI will be significantly approved um, as these private clouds are established. All right, and then I, I, I'm, I'm assuming this is really the first time that that you or or probably any company is is built, you know, an on-premises contractor-owned, contractor-operated uh, cloud facility of this type. Um, were there any particular challenges or, or learning experiences that you had to overcome to to get to the point where you're at now? I would probably say the biggest challenge we're still working our way through is um, is security redundancy. Um, so the Army has established certain security um, protocols uh, for a traditional data center. Um, we bring with us a responsibility to provide that same security in our cloud environment. And so that's really one challenge we've had to kind of work through because we bring a certain level of security and protection in our normal um, delivery of a, of a cloud infrastructure. And, and it's just something that we have to, to work through because was the Army was um, deciding their security protocols, um, they were with the assumption then that it was for a data center um, not for a cloud that comes with its own security capability. Mm. So it's just something we have to keep working through. 
Um, so we don't create so much security redundancy that it it makes it creates too much latency for the for the user um, to take advantage of the application. And so there, there, that latency and security redundancy are probably the two areas we're spending the most time on trying to work our way through with this being uh, a first-of-a-kind delivery. That's interesting. And it's prob- probably not even envisioned or addressed in, in DOD's cloud security requirements guide because I don't think anybody quite envisioned this kind of setup at the time that was being drafted. I think that's exactly right, you know, and so this is a this is a good example of the Army trying to take advantage of how quickly technology is moving, but understanding that it's also putting us, you know, kind of at odds in some cases with uh, the Army's envisioned security protocols, uh, because quite, quite simply, there's creating redundancy. Redundancy usually creates latency, and so... You know that, and you're you're always trying to clean, you know, re- remove as much of that latency as you can, so that the person who's using the application is getting the kind of experience that they're looking for from that application. That's Kevin Avon from IBM. He helps run the company's Army and Marine Corps accounts, talking with us about Army Cloud and Army Logistics. Earlier in the hour, we talked with Major General Brad Spacey, the commander of the Air Force Installation and Mission Support Center. That organization about to hit a new milestone, full operating capability. If you missed that conversation, we'll post this week's whole show, as always, at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. You can also get it in podcast form. Subscribe on Podcast One or on iTunes. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD with Federal News Radio DoD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DoD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.